Paul Hawken, welcome to the new school. Thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here. I've had the joy of spending the last few days immersed in your books and uh, the internet, and there are so many dimensions of your work. But before we get to the specifics of your work, I thought we might start with the present moment that we find ourselves in. Here we are, 60 days, some calculable number of hours, what is it, 1,200 and some hours, <laughs> away from the most important presidential election, I think, of my lifetime and yours. Um, we have at the same time the biggest economic crisis since perhaps 1932, and we have the greatest ecological crisis in many thousands of years, with the polar ice caps melting far more rapidly than anybody expected. In your uh, most recent book, and also in your extraordinary article on uh, the WTO meeting in Seattle, uh, but, but also in Blessed Unrest, you borrow uh, from Stuart Brand's uh, great book called The Long Now, uh, and you talk about three different frames of time in which we can understand these crises. So I thought it might be good to start by asking you for your reflections on these three interactive crises and how the frames of time help us understand them. Start with the small questions and work up. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> You know, my, my chair is taped down, so if I don't turn my chair, you will It's, it's actually not taped down, Paul. You can move it. Oh, it is? Yeah. Oh, really? It looks taped down. No, it's taped down. <laughs> well, you can pick it up and move it. I'm going to swivel. <laughs> I just don't want to feel like I had my back to you guys the whole time and Good. talking to you. So um, how are you? <laughs> um, well, I assume that the... The, this perfect storm of crises that you're referring to is why we're all here, which is we all were born in the you know, 40s, 50s, and 60s, and hoorah. <laughs> I'm assuming we all came together at this time to, what a great time to be alive, really. Um, I actually have a contrarian view. I don't think this election is as important as people think it is. Um, it's, I think it's very important that fascism be defeated, but I... But I, for sure, so I want to make, I'm not agnostic about it. It's just that underlying, the, the poli underlying this election is the polity itself. And the quick uptake for the support <clears throat> of Sarah Palin is really emblematic of a kind of a impoverishment in America of identity and the willingness to reach out to false narratives, you know, that will bolster the, um, the fear and the anxiety that people have. And so, I mean, Karl Rove knows this very well and understands it. And <clears throat> to see the cultural war played out again for the third election of vote, um, it shouldn't have come as a surprise, <laughs> but it did. And um, so I, you know, I think, but I, I, I think underneath that is really the, you know, is really an, the end times of this particular aspect of American culture because it is a culture that shifted in the 60s really um, 
from a culture of, of production, of can-do, of, of, of making things, to a culture of, of, of consumption. And that, that now is so hardwired into people's expectations that we will get more, have more, that things will be cheaper, that we can afford more, and so forth, that no politician dare speak to that. And the last one who did was Jimmy Carter, and we saw what happened to him. The, first, the last time a politician actually told the truth to the American people, and he was hugely derided and made fun of, and yet he spoke the truth in terms of our expectations. And so I don't, I don't see Obama doing that. I don't see Biden doing that. And, and I see on the other side pandering. You know, but so, so that's why I say the election, I don't think it's so important, is some underlying things that are occurring. Uh, the, the is we're in, I call the Red Queen Dilemma from Alice in Wonderland. So, you know, when she tells Alice that, you know, you can go twice as fast <laughs> in uh, Wonderland and, go, and get nowhere. And, <clears throat> and, um, and I, I think those are very interesting, going back to the sense of time, but I mean, the... Uh, sort of um, uh, dynamic, if you will, be within or with resource constraints that is not remarked upon. And in the last couple of years, um, uh, as many of you do, I'm, I'm sure you have listservs and things, and you just start your day with all this bad news, you know, about the environment and social issues, and, you know, good morning. <laughs> Turn on your laptop and boom, you know. And so, but the last two years, tried to try to get underneath kind of what was happening in the, sort of the world, I tried to turn away from that as a sole source of information. And I began to get uh, newsletters and emails, really, but from... Um, investment banking companies all over the world, houses, that, that dealt in commodities. Now, I was, I was really curious to know wh who's buying what, where, and how much are they selling it for, and, and why. It, it seems so, you know, <laughs> arcane, but unless you're in there trying to make money off, you know, gold or coal or gas or something like that. But I wasn't. I was just curious to know what was going on. And, <clears throat> and I think what we're seeing here is the... A 200-year history of industrialism change from one where feedback loops were negative to feedback loops that are becoming positive. That is to say, the feedback loops and resource constraints are going to reinforce constraints as opposed to create new openings. And what I mean by that is, I mean you're familiar with the work uh, around peak oil and and it's great work being done there. The, the, probably the most telling number around that is that during the Bush administration, uh, one-fifth, 20% of all oil that's ever consumed was consumed. So, just a, But what's interesting about that number is that just coincidentally, 20% of all the oil that we know exists in, in the ground was also consumed. <laughs> so we're standing at that place where a fifth of all oil and from the past was consumed, and the fifth of what we know to exist was consumed. And that was just in eight years. And, um, and that brings about a very different dynamic between what I would call fast energy and, and then slow energy and then long-term energy. And we think of the energy crisis or the climate crisis as involved with geological energy, you know, which is coal, gas, oil. And, <clears throat> of course, there's nuclear as well. And 
But in fact, there's three sources of energy. There's fast, which is food, and there's, uh, you know, sort of <clears throat> slow, which is water catchments, and, you know, which is forest, and the formation of topsoil. And then there is long-term energy, which is what we've been powering this place, you know, our, our productivity for 200 years. And for 200 years, I mean, in a sense, the Neo-Malthusians have said, you, know, you can't keep doing this to the soil. You can't keep doing this to our you know, fossil water. You can't keep doing this to um, <clears throat> our resource base, or there'll be starvation, there'll be famine, there'll be, you know, and then they've all been proven wrong and um, in the short term. So the Ehrlichs and the Dana Meadows and so forth, have, and they've been even made fun of, and even scientists have said, no, you know, the cornucopian thing has prevailed. But what we really haven't talked about is that there has been this massive subsidy of, of, of long-term energy, the geologic energy, into the slow and, and fast energy. So, you know, nitrogen and fertilizers, and we'll go deeper in our boreholes for, for water, you know, we'll build reservoirs because we've destroyed the forest and so forth. So, in a sense, there's been this massive subsidy <clears throat> going into these, uh, 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 like, fast and, and slow uh, creations of energy. And now, but we're, we're reaching the point where the long-term energy um, is running out. And... It, and that produces a very, very different situation. So with, with, with oil, I mean, the biggest strike, the biggest discovery of oil in the last 12, 14 years is off Brazil. And that oil field is 20,000 feet down in the water. It takes drill bits that can withstand 1,500 to 200, uh, 2,000 C centigrade to go through the salt dome under, over which the oil is. It's going to take... 10 to 15 years to get to it. It's costing $300 billion, and it'll power the world for eight months, right? So, it, there isn't a lot, and you see these ads from ExxonMobil saying, we've got these new technologies, and we don't need to disturb the environment to find the oil. We'll find it. I mean, forget climate from it. Where is it? It's not there, and uh, in the way it was, in the way it has been. And so, you have car factories in place that are going to require 61 million more barrels per day in the next 30 years. Uh, oil has peaked at 86 million barrels, but it actually oil has liquid fuels have. The oil has gone down in the last three, four years in terms of production. Uh, Exxon, Chevron, Fina, uh, Total, uh, Shell, I mean the big BP, all their production has gone down in the last three, four years. It's gone down the last 12 months. You'd think if anybody wanted to produce more oil now, they could. They would do it now at $130, $40 a barrel. They couldn't do it. Uh, Cantrell, a big field in Mexico, down 24% this year. Rush production down. I mean, production's down, 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 down. And it was so interesting that before Bush went to Saudi Arabia, the King Abdullah said that he has a responsibility to his children's children that they have the same benefits that he and his family have had from Saudi oil, which means we're not going to pump more oil, in other words. And I don't know why Bush went there and asked for it. But, but even Hugo Chavez said the same thing. and said, why should I pump more oil when my income is going up? I can just do what I'm doing. Or, you know, why? It's working pretty well. In fact, he intimated to a foreign journalist, I could actually produce less oil, and it might actually make my income go up any further. And I think that's really the situation we're in. We will see two, three, four, five hundred dollar barrel oil. And uh, we're going to see it fairly quickly. 
And, um, and when you see that, you see this BTU parity with natural gas and other forms of oil, of energy. Coal went up from $60 to $150 a ton the last year. Nobody talks about that. But that has a huge effect on the world because, I mean, most uh, coal is electricity, most liquid fuels are transport, but, I mean, or diesel f for electricity in some cases, but uh, we had peak water a long time ago in, you know, parts of Africa, in, you know, Western China, certainly in the Midwest, in, in many parts of India. Uh, and uh, so what's happening, you make the boreholes deeper, but the price of electricity is going up and the, the geometric increase of energy required as you go down arithmetically into the ground such that water doubles, triples, quadruples in price, and you then look at this fossil food system that we have, and that's what it is, it's a fossil food system. And hugely dependent on these inputs. And as those inputs go up in cost uh, and go down in availability, then you have a very, very, very vulnerable food system. I mean, permaculturists have known this for a long time, but, but not the rest of society. And, and so, you, you're going to get a cascading effect uh, in terms of these constraints that will reverse a really two-century-long uh, relationship, which is that all our lives and our parents and their parents and their parents' lives, as we increase the inputs into the economy, we had geometric uh, increases in output. And that's called productivity. It's called industrialization. And as long as you do that, you have a rise in income. As long as you have a rise in income, you have the creation of capital, financial capital. Um, and we're looking, uh, it could be within three or four years, and I'm so loath to make predictions. I rarely do, because they're always wrong. But I think that within a very short time, you're going to see, in a sense, geometric increases in inputs with arithmetic increases in output. And this is the Red Queen dilemma. In other words, the costs are going to go up and the inputs are going to be so expensive, the outputs are not going to match you know, the, the amount of or the cost of the inputs. And when you have that, then income actually goes down. It goes, doesn't go up, it goes down. That's just e Econ 101. And when e and income goes down, then capital formation goes down. So we're really looking at peak capital, which is very different than just peak oil. You know. And peak income, particularly in this country, because the, and again, during the Bush administration, curiously, but not so curiously, but the, for every dollar increment of GDP that there has uh, been produced, there's been a $5 increment in debt. So in order for us to grow, it's a five to one ratio. And uh, the profligacy of that is simply looming larger and larger. And again, anybody who says when and how that will burst, you know, is probably gonna be wrong, but it cannot endure. And the, uh, Matisse Wackernagel does something about where he does a talk and he has a balloon and he blows it up and he talks about economic growth and he blows it up, it gets bigger and bigger and pretty soon everybody's so nervous that the next time <laughs> he blows it, you know, it's gonna burst, you know, and you know, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and that's our debt and so that hangs over us as, over us as, as well and I, I just think that 
um, that until some of these things play out, we won't really have a political uh, response because both parties are still playing to the delusions that have been uh, fostered for so long and have become, in a sense, the, um, the, the, the narrative both ways and how the parties approach that narrative, of course, is very different. But it is really the same story, and it's a story of, of, uh, of illusion. This weekend, the government is nationalizing Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, two of the biggest mortgage uh, holders in uh, the country, um, and is uh, essentially printing dollars uh, as if there were no limit to how much uh, money could be printed. How do you think the, specifically the financial crisis, you've spoken to the commodities, to uh, what you think will happen to capitalization and so forth, but do you have any personal sense of how the financial crisis will play, play out? And specifically, for all the people in the room who are sitting trying to figure out what this will mean for us personally, mm. uh, what do you do? Well, the, the, it's, it's, it's always fun to watch Republicans do right. what they accuse others right. of doing. So this is socialism, which is great. I'm glad to see him do it, but I mean, they're socializing, you know, the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, uh, you know, so that's cool. The, the, the economy always, income always grows slow, slower in Republican administrations. They create more debt than Democrats, et cetera. But it's, it's, it's an interesting kind of um, mirroring kind of thing. Um, the capital, the, the, the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac had a, 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 a capital to debt ratio of about 890 to 1. <laughs> you know, so for every dollar of capital, they had $890 out there in debt. So it doesn't take a big change in the value of their debt portfolio to wipe out their capital base, which is they, they're completely bankrupt. They have no money at all. And uh, their ability to endure is really the full faith and credit of the United States backing it up, right, which is called you, by the way. <laughs> um, and um, so I would say that the way to look at the situation is that the, a lot of the wealth that we think is here just isn't. So if you look at the markets, what markets will, are going to do, not that I'm trying to anthropomorphize them, but they do, is to get rid of the excess wealth. In other words, it's just because it's not there. So it's going to move through the, our society, our economy, in ways that just defy you know, logic. Because it's not about logic. It's about you know, sort of shedding the illusion of wealth. And so real estate goes first, residential real estate. And my guess is, well, then we saw cars, so they're going to shed Detroit, right? <laughs> uh, bye. <laughs> you know, I mean, um, but then commercial real estate, uh, that's going to go. Because the, the consumerism society, we still consume, but consumerism is going to be hit. So there goes commercial real estate and strip centers and malls and all that sort of stuff. Um, and it's going to keep working its way through the system, and then because the 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 hunger and the the, the sort of this hungry ghost addiction 
that America has to buying, to having more, to defining itself by what it has instead of who it is, uh, is sort of unshakable, then what you'll see is inflation. So I have inflation. So I have this image of somebody in Manteca or somebody, you know, who bought the house for $380,000 and saw it go to $240,000 and dumped it and is in debt, you know, and then it went to $180,000 and then four years from now it's going to be sold for $600,000. But that's in nominal terms because of inflation or something, you know, thinking, God, they got screwed both ways. Yeah, they did, you know. And that's what's going to happen is that basically the people who pay the highest price are the lower quintiles of the economy, the, 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 you know, as opposed to the, to the people who are um, the richest. And so what to do? Um, well, uh, I, I'm, you asked what I'm going to say. <laughs> um, don't be in the markets. Get out, of, get out of the equity markets. Stand aside. If you don't understand it, don't just get away. Just, and if the people who manage your 401ks and things don't understand it, get them out of the way. But just step aside, and um, it's not worth it. Second, um, just, you know, get out of debt, you know, I mean, not because, if you can, to the, to the extent that you can, if you can't, you can't, that's all there is to it, but, but to the extent that you create freedom and resiliency for yourself, that's what you want to do. You don't, you don't want to be um, the subject uh, of, the, the object, excuse me, of, of forces that are really neurasthenic and volatile. Economy and what we're seeing is an economy going to perturbation, just like an ecosystem or, you know, habitat. Where it's going to go into perturbation, and it's crazy making because you can never. As soon as you think it's one way, it's going to be the other way. I mean, everybody went to Martha's Vineyard and then tuck it in August, and then oil prices, everything went down. Everything, oh, everything's okay, and the market went up. And you watch and see what happens <laughs> next month. I mean. Um, they're back at work, you know, watch out. <laughs> and uh, with all their fear and everything and all their speculative greed. So, um, <clears throat> but, so get out of debt. And then you're, if you have savings, save it. <laughs> you know, and put into those things that are store value. Now, store values are land, by the way. It's a definite store value. Land. Land is a store value. Um, I... Really, I wouldn't, I wouldn't store it in dollars. Dollars are not a store of value. A, a currency is an accounting system. It's a, it's, a, it's a counter. It's a metric. And if you cook the books, then it doesn't matter how you read the books because they're fraud, and the, the dollar is a fraud. I mean, it's, it's been cooked for so long. It has no meaning. And the only reason it holds up in value is because if the rest of the world acknowledges that, then it suffers as well. I mean, China loses 6-7% of its GDP every year because of the $1.8 trillion it holds in American dollars. So, but if it dumps it all, then it's really in trouble because its economy pancakes as well. So, you know, it's a very strange sort of, uh, you know, standoff going off on the dollar, but I would just, I would, I would own Swiss francs or anything that's just sort of ordinary and normative and pays one and three quarters percent a year and, you know, whatever. I mean, um, but I, if I had savings, I, I wouldn't own dollars. Um, uh, it's not what I do. What I do is I actually have, we, 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 we own, we 
have a, a socially responsible mutual fund called High Water, and we invest in companies all around the world that are in solar and wind and doing stuff that is really... I was going to ask you about High Water because uh, you did a, an article, an extraordinary critique of socially responsible investment funds where you basically called the question and, and said they weren't socially responsible at all. Right. Uh, and then you created this, uh, this fund, High yeah, Water. Exactly. And, uh, <laughs> but I remember seeing the early prospectus for it before it had a track record. And um, I haven't checked it recently, but it has done extraordinarily well by yeah, it its investors. And by normal standards, at some time it should come back down to earth. I mean, mm. it's just, it's been a tremendous outperform. Yeah. Uh, how do you think you did that? And is it continuing <laughs> to uh, do well? It is. Well, the piece I wrote four or five years ago was sort of the emperor's new clothes about SRI funds, which is what they say and what they do are just two different things. And I think many of you might have seen the articles about Pax World Funds, where they're investing in defense companies and, you know, and I mean, just bizarre sort of stuff. There's been a, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and many other publications now have outed them. And they're starting to out the SRI industry uh, for basically taking advantage of our our intentions, you know, to, to do something with our money that is a little bit more noble. And um, so, yeah, after that, I did uh, start this fund. And, and then, of course, the industry criticized me roundly. I got even a death threat that was so interesting in the article, from, which I thought was cool. That was good. I hadn't got a, I hadn't got a death threat since the civil rights movement. I thought, well, I must be, <laughs> must be touching something here. <laughs> and, of course, what we were touching is a, a $2 trillion industry that said, you know, leave it alone. Um, and, but what we did is we have the strictest standards in the world. So the, the criteria that we use for our companies are so far high, so much higher than any other SRI or research house in the world. And the very first criteria is intention, was what is your intention? What is the intention of this business? And either it's going to address the future as we, I think, at least in this room, commonly understand it, and if it's not, we're not even interested in it. We're not going to analyze it. We don't care if they have child care, if they're selling sugar-frosted flakes to children. It doesn't matter. Their intention is wrong. You know, it's not helpful. So our first thing is always, is this company really helpful? And if it's not helpful, then we just put it aside. And that eliminates a lot of companies. <laughs> and it eliminates a lot in the United States. And so we often find ourselves in Germany and Sweden and Japan and India, Brazil, um, and many other, many other places. And we did do really, really well. We did, I think, 74% in the first 22, four months or something. And, and then... What's the name of it? Oh, it's called High Water Global. High Water? Yeah. Yeah, it's private until January. I don't recommend it. I'm just describing it. And, um, but it was interesting that we had the highest criteria, the highest standards, and... Um, and we did have that return. I think it was because the dollar collapsed. So we got that and solar and wind and everything just became, you know, the cat's pajamas and everybody invested in it. But we don't really sell. We just buy and hold. And 
we got hit in the first two quarters, just like everybody else, the first quarter. Uh, but we recovered, and so we're making money this year. But, but it's really about standards. We didn't really, it wasn't really about the return. It was really about setting a standard. And, mm -hmm. and we were a little embarrassed about the return. Let me do a little biographical sketch, which I decided not to do at the start. But uh, you're an environmentalist, an entrepreneur, a journalist, the author of seven best-selling books. The most recent blessed unrest, how the largest movement in the world came into being and no one saw it coming, 2007. Before that, with Amory Lovins and Hunter Lovins, natural capitalism creating the next industrial revolution in 1999, uh, translated into 14 languages. The Ecology of Commerce in 1993 was voted the best college text on business in the environment. A wonderful book still to read. I, I just loved reading it recently. Growing a Business, 1987, became a 17-part PBS series shown in 115 countries and dedicated to a mutual friend, Gordon Sherman, who was an extraordinary businessman. Based on your experience founding Smith & Hawken, as well as doing three business turnarounds and founding Erwan Trading Company in 1967, a, a natural food business which started uh, doing $300 a day in business, and in six years, when you sold it, uh, was doing $25,000 a day. Um, and you started in the natural food business in 1967, when the counterculture was resolutely anti-business, and when being an entrepreneur was a dirty word. But you saw an opening, and you said that you, you, you needed to change your own health habits because of a life history of asthma, and you couldn't find the foods you needed in one place, and you imagined that a business that would, uh, that would help you would help other people, that other people had the same need. And so out of this grew a philosophy of business that I can say to you um, reads as fresh 21 years later as it read when you wrote it. It's an incredibly vigorous book about business. And so what is unusual is that you know, you, 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 you are called upon by presidents. Bill Clinton uh, uh, said, uh, uh, what was it, Natural Capitalism? Was, was that the one he liked so much? Was one of the five most important books of our time. You're called upon by presidents and prime ministers and Google and all kinds of, you know, very large corporations uh, uh, to advise them or consult with them or whatever. But your message to them is unstintingly um, real. You don't cut corners. You say what you believe. Uh, and it came to me that you're kind of like an ambassador uh, from this global movement that you describe in Blessed Unrest uh, to some of the large corporations and the political elites that are trying to figure this thing out who they can count on to tell them the truth, but who is not anti-business, but trying to create, as you, as you say on your website, since age 20, you've been dedicated to a life uh, uh, of uh, sustainability and changing the relationship between business and the environment. So I want to go to an image that I found in a growing a business, which you know, you, you allude to your life in different places in your books, but 
I find, and I know you find, that people's life stories are extraordinarily useful to understanding who they really are. You did that with Thoreau and Emerson and Martin Luther King and Gandhi in writing Blessed Unrest. You immersed yourself in their biographies. Mm. But you are uh, quite uh, 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 silent in a certain sense about the, you don't make your own biography your sort of central story the way Obama or McCain or mm. somebody else does. You don't milk your biography in any, in any way, <laughs> shape, or form. <clears throat> but there was an extraordinary little line in Growing a Business where you talked about how you were fourth generation Californian, you grew up in Berkeley, and you were living a middle class life until at the age of eight, your family blew apart, you three children were shipped off to relatives, mm. and you remembered a Christmas where there was no tree, no presents, and just cornflakes and some warm powdered milk at age eight. Yeah. And I thought to myself, there must be a thread <laughs> from that eight-year-old child eating cornflakes and corn powdered flakes. milk for Christmas with no tree and no presents. And the utterly extraordinary contribution that you are making to trying to help save the earth. And I wanted to ask you, how do you, how do you trace that line? It was the cornflakes, it's true. <laughs> um, it's so interesting because after that, I, we did get parsed out to different relatives and <clears throat> who didn't want us, and, and, um, which is, you know, first thing, you lose your family, second thing, nobody really wants you, and so you definitely internalize that, you know. Um, but there was a woman down the street, uh, she was in her 80s, lovely, lovely woman, and who sort of took me under her wing, and she grew African violets everywhere. Her house was like this little, and this was in Oakdale, you know, which is still nowhere. And uh, it's over that way. <laughs> the home of Eddie LeBaron, the quarterback for the Washington Redskins. That's the. Um, and she, she started giving me cuttings. And so I started to grow African violets. And, and, uh, it, and one day, I don't know whether I bought it or somebody gave it to me, but somebody gave me kind of like Osmocote, but whatever the version was then, you know, but it's like a, a, an artificial fertilizer, you know, which you sprinkled on your plants. And, I, and it, you know, I had all these photographs of drawings on these plants going crazy, and I thought, oh, wow, you know, <laughs> a shortcut. And, <laughs> and so I put it on my African violets, and they were dead within 24 hours, you know. And they were like my family. And... Um, I didn't have family, you know, so plants were my family, and that continued later into the garden, you know, when I had garden, I was a kid, I had garden, and so, and I, I found that, that what was outside was trustworthy. You could trust what was outside, but you couldn't trust what was inside. Mm -hmm. And so that was kind of a, so the, out of that came a real profound um, uh, questioning of, of, of declarative statements by commercial companies, that's for sure. Um, but by authority and anything like that. So I became very, very you know, suspicious. And, um, but I think the poverty, which was from then on, 
uh, and I left home. Well, I mean, I was just, part, you know, it's just sort of, I mean, I was on the streets by, by the time I was 14. So, and if you want to learn about America, go be a kid on the streets, you know, and see how. What do you mean you were on the streets? I was living, on, I was living in people's house, basements, you know, and cars, and going to Berkeley High School and working and trying to. Was this in Berkeley? Yeah, it was in Berkeley, yeah. Trying to keep it together. And uh, it's hard to do your homework, you know, when you don't have a light. And, and what, what, what was going on in your mind then? I mean, what were your dreams, or what, how did that form you? Well, one little strange thing was that I, 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 I have to say, I shared it with her once, but um, I think I know what it's like to be a woman <laughs> in the sense that when you're a young lad, um, you get these men doing these really gross things to you, hitting on you and doing stuff. You go, what did I do? What did I say? What, where, is there some sign on me that says you know, hit on me, and, and I wasn't, I wasn't uh, gay, you know, and not homophobic, but wasn't gay, you know, and so that really was like, uh, and so then you have to develop that kind of, that hypervigilance, you know, which is like, why do they like me, you know? Um, are they just being nice, or do they want something, you know? I mean, funders have that same problem, so. <laughs> uh, but it did make me very interested in change, though. You know, because to me, and the fact that the first company is Erwan, is an anagram for nowhere backwards. I said, well, we live nowhere. This is nowhere. This country, this place, the values. So for me, Erwan was really about, okay, can we transform, can we change this, you know? And that was like a, my first attempt at, at, at change using commerce. And the only reason I went into commerce, I prefer commerce to business, but because um, commerce is ancient and, and really honorable, I think, very honorable. Business gets a little dicey. Corporations, you're in another whole <laughs> place. And, um, and only because I found that in order to do the things that had to be done, in the food system that, that you, know, you couldn't do it as a nonprofit. It just didn't work. Now, you can do co-ops. That works, you know, as long as they're not trying to invest a lot of capital. But in terms of what I was doing, I, I chose. And so that's how I came to write that book and others and, and use business. But never as a fan of business. I'm not a big fan of it at all. Uh, I always find myself a stranger there. Um, and, but I have found in, in, in the last sort of four years especially, now CEOs and, and, and heads of large, large corporations will actually listen to me, which I find just stupefyingly. Like, <laughs> and I assume that they're really scared if they think, you know, or, and you know if they talk to me that they're, they're desperate. You know. <laughs> November 30th, 1999, you're in Seattle at the third ministerial of the World Trade Organization. 700 organizations and 40 to 60,000 people are in the streets. Our mutual friend Jerry Mander, who recently did a, a new school uh, conversation with us, uh, is there with the International Forum on Globalization, right. one of the, the key players. You're with Randy Hayes, the founder of Rainforest Action Network. 
you are in the street uh, and uh, surrounded by a police, a peaceable demonstration going on. Um, and then what follows, as you describe it, in effect, uh, was an assault by the police that turned a peaceable demonstration into a riot. Mm -hmm. um, you have, you wrote an incredible uh, article about it called Skeleton Woman uh, in Seattle, N30. Uh, is it N30? Yeah, N30. November N30. 30th was the day yeah. of yeah. Skeleton Woman in Seattle, the references to an Inuit uh, myth about skeleton woman and a fisherman. Uh, but it's one of the most powerful pieces of journalism I've ever read. Uh, extraordinarily well written. And it struck me in reading it, that came out January 6, 2000, that when you talk about your book, Blessed Unrest, you talk about having given a thousand talks and having had all this feedback. But it seemed to me that I could trace some of the origins of Blessed Unrest Yes. to N30 and to the experience you had in no Seattle. No question. And um, so I, I'd like to ask you to, to talk about that experience and just the, the physical moment when you had pepper spray injected systematically into each eye uh, along with the tear gas and just how Seattle changed your perception of what was going on. Well, I, I, the, the thing that struck me about Seattle was that the, many of the people there at Fifth and Pike, where I was with Randy, um, it was their first direct action. They were from students from in, University of Washington, or they'd come in from you know, Olympia or other places, Evergreen. And there was such a sweetness in their eyes and such, such idealism. In, in the best sense, and um, and it was so. It was really interesting to see that loss of innocence within minutes, really. Uh, and it's very vivid the that moment because the um, I mean, basically, the, the the White House had intervened and said, "Look, if you don't." clear the streets, and the president who's coming in that night um, isn't going to come. And so Seattle, and you can see the, the FBI and Secret Service and, uh, and some national militia on the roofs of the convention center with, with guns, and, and they had the ones with the wooden pellets, bullets. Um, and so you could tell something was coming down. <laughs> and Richard Goldstein, the sergeant there, announced, you know, that 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 we had to move, or otherwise they would have to take direct action or something. I forget the words he used, but and nobody moved. And there was this wonderful moment. The silence sort of descended. It was quiet, and you could hear uh, coming up uh, Fifth Street um, this music and bells and drums and and joy. It was just joyous. And around the corner came the Koreans, and they were priests and they're dressed in white and they had these big, you know, Korean drums and bells and flutes and and they had and they were chanting and they were joyous and it was just coming like this amazing, you know, vision right towards the police, you know. And, and right then is when they started firing the tear gas and you know and everybody of course and then 
the people are sitting down and they do it systematically like they did with uh, up in Humboldt County. They just do it systematically and just, you know, you know, pull you back and pull your hood off or your hoodie or whatever and, and pull, pull your eye back and just spray you. So, and these are, you know, saddle police. And so you, you see them just for a second before they do it because they pull your eye open. And, and you look at, you're looking at another human being. You know? I mean, it's just so how, you know, how do, you, how do we get there? You know? But, but I, as I said in Blessed, I think it was the first time that the people of the world belled the cat of economic fundamentalism. In other words, so it couldn't go any place else in the world without people saying, there it is, there it is, and there it is. And um, the reason that Blessed came out of that was because I kept trying to figure out, well, how did this happen, though? Because I was more used to the anti-war, to the civil rights movement, which is very charismatic leader, top-down, you know, do you know, my way or the highway kind of stuff and organization with lots of political internecine kind of, you know, spats and fights and sharp elbows. And Seattle was organized so differently. And, and it, as I tried to find out how it it really went back to the encuentras that were 1990, 1992 in Quito, uh, where the indigenous people of the Americas of South Meso North America got together for the first time since the conquest and met. And they created an organizational you know, method. There was really Mayan that really came from the organizers in Chiapas. And that meme, if you will, was what was used in Seattle, not necessarily somebody announcing it, but it just, that was how it was organized. And that's why it was so effective. And that was why I started to think about blessed unrest and think, well, what's going on here? Something happened here which is different than what we've seen before. In Blessed Unrest, the, one of the central metaphors that you use for this movement without a name, without leadership, that defies all normal sociological analyses of the nature of movements, uh, and you use a biological metaphor, mm. the, the metaphor of the immune system, and you describe the immune system as the most complex system in the body, the human body as the most complex organism on Earth, uh, uh, civilization as the most complex uh, collection of organisms on Earth, and this movement as the most complex coalition with a shared purpose that has ever existed on Earth. Yeah. And I was very struck by that because until you named the movement without a name, the movement without a name, I don't think anybody had quite named it the movement without a name or <laughs> brought uh, this analysis of infinite complexity and then you go deep into the nature of the immune system because it isn't just good cells opposing bad cells, but a very complex dance um, that is psychobiological as well as uh, mm -hmm. entire, you know. So um, uh, where have you, you know, I always find, well, when you write a book, there's the book that you write, and then you go out and talk about it. Right. And I think in some sense you only really discover what the book is about after you've talked about it and exchanged views with people. So I guess I wanted to ask, has that immune metaphor 
for this movement without a name and, and the whole effort to heal the earth, uh, has that stood up for you in that kind of deep examination that takes place as one talks about and explores a book one has written? It has. It, curiously, though, that the, the metaphor preceded the book, and I sort of blurted it out at a speech um, once at Bioneers and said, this is like humanity's immune response to political corruption, economic disease, and ecological degradation. Just so bleh, the words came out. And when I went home that day, I thought, God, I don't even know how immune system works. You know, that was really... <laughs> should I really be saying that? And... Um, so that's when I started doing the research, and I was really surprised that it, it worked even better than what I thought, but that was just dumb luck. And, uh, but the, the immune system is the most complex system in the body, and it's so interesting that, you know, like 20, you know better than anyone probably, that at one point medical science began to say, well, you know, our thoughts could change our immune system. Well, uh, golly. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the, the, you know, the immune system created the brain, you know, <laughs> in a sense. I mean, I mean, the immune system was there before the brain, you know, because it had to guard an organism against microorganisms, and that's what it does really well. But when the threats to us became bigger, and like, you know, I use a book, you know, Buicks and wife beaters and bears and things. I mean, when threats became bigger than microorganisms, we, not as human beings, but as organisms, needed something else to detect a threat and then and learn how to handle that threat. And that's called the brain, you know, that part of the brain, not all the brain. So the connection between the immune system and the brain is just, is, is, is phenomenal. But what inter interested me mostly was that the, our image of it as being kind of the Department of Defense is so, so off, you know, which is really a projection of, uh, uh, onto uh, a biological function. And it, it is so much about detente and rapprochement and about community you know, than it is about trying to kill, kill, kill. And, but it definitely identifies, you know, as its function, me, 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 not me, not me. That's a not me. What is that? Hello. Is that good? Is that bad? And it has this extraordinary memory, you know, uh, dendritically stored and immunological, kind of like I call an Alexandrian library of the threats that we have faced as human beings. And this, we carry this around. It's so, so miraculous, you know, what is inside us. And... And, and in that sense, I think the movement definitely is like an immune system in the sense it's like humane, humane, not humane. That's not humane. This whole movement is about identifying what is not humane and then addressing it. Well, how can I address it? Is somebody addressing it? Should, should I do it? I don't know how to do it. Well, I'm just going to try anyway. I mean, that is how these NGOs were formed because there was, they were formed by default, by the absence of institutions that normally or normatively should have been there to address it or just simply aren't there, or that so many of the threats are really so new that nothing had been created. And so the immune system you know, does really stand up. And how we understand that in a collective way really, I think, relates to sort of a collective intelligence that we don't recognize in ourselves, mm -hmm. uh, between us, among us. Mm -hmm. 
there's so many directions we could take this. Uh, I want to ask a last question and then open it up to uh, hear some questions from the floor. Uh, one of your earliest books, I think perhaps your earliest book, was uh, The Magic of Findhorn. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, uh, 1975, uh, The Magic of Findhorn. And uh, you went to, to Findhorn and um, had quite a, an experience there. Um, and I wanted to ask you, uh, these uh, 33 years later, um, how does the magic of Fenthorn sit with you today? What remains? Uh, what what remains? You still? Yeah. Well, Fenthorn came about because one of my customers at Erwan was Gloria Swanson. And um, she would have us ship food everywhere in the world, Portugal, wherever she was. And, uh, <laughs> and she invited me down to her uh, apartment in, in uh, New York, and I met this guy named uh, Cleve Baxter, I think. I might have screwed up his name. But he wrote The Secret Life of Plants with Peter Tompkins. Or no, he was the first chapter, excuse me. And he had been um, uh, an expert in lie, lie detectors for the CIA. So he knew a lot about galvanic response, skin response, and, and he, he used, you know, those. Um, I, my mind is so crazy, you know, when I think of galvanic skin response, I think of Mary Shelley, Shelley Frank, you know, who wrote Frankenstein. And, and uh, <laughs> it, because it's such a metaphor, you know, talk about that. And, you know, she had, during that time, Galvani, you know, and Volta, you know, I mean, these Italians, but Galvani was going around Europe with his galvanometer, you know, cranking it up, and they were taking the severed heads of criminals that had been, you know, executed, and they were putting the sort of anode and cathode on these heads, and the heads were going, oh, uh, you know, and the eyes were opening and so forth. And so there was this kind of image that electricity was a source of life, it was life itself, you know, and you just had to get the circuits right and you could bring back life. And um, this is a different sort of pro-life movement at that time. <laughs> and she had, had uh, two miscarriages, and then she had a, a child that was stillborn. And she was, she was so um, grief-stricken. And she screamed for a galvanometer. This is true. And she wanted to bring her baby back to life. And so this was the source of Frankenstein. Mm. So, so here's Cleve with the galvanometer. And he then takes it and he puts it onto a plant, a dracaena, to see if he can get a response from it. And, and um, nothing. And then he thinks about burning it with a cigarette. And as soon as he thinks about it, he gets a response in the plant. Whoa, you know. And then that's the brine shrimp experiment where he drops the brine shrimp into the hot water in the next room and the plant goes crazy. And so he was the first person to really posit the idea that plants have primary perception, the ficus here. I mean, you know. <laughs> we didn't say hi. <laughs> Ha, <laughs> <laughs>
and she introduced me to him at her place, and he began to talk about Finhorn. And I thought, oh, wow, plants. And I was so interested in plants from my childhood. So I didn't realize there was a New Age community. I got to London, and I found that it was, and I thought, I, I actually booked my ticket back home. I said, I don't need that. I, I'm from California. I don't need to go to <laughs> Scotland. And, but I went there. And the reason I don't talk about the book much is because I, I made a mistake as a writer, which is I, I, I gave them permission to approve or disapprove the book. Uh -huh. And while I was there at the community, the wheels came off. And I wrote a long epilogue, which is way cool and very prescient in, in hindsight. And they wouldn't let me publish it. And so then I went to my publisher and said, you got to take my name off the book. And they wouldn't do it. I was just too naive. And so that's why I've never really mm -hmm. um, put that in my, because I feel like it wasn't my complete book. Mm -hmm. And the epilogue said, a funny thing happened on the way to <laughs> finishing this book, which is that um, the community came, came, came mm -hmm. apart in very much the same way that people would come apart there. And the, the whole persona of it just dissolved, mm -hmm. and, uh, which is very healthy for the community. I realized there was one other question I was going to ask. Um, your books are not only beautifully written, but so informed by such an extraordinary range of, of reading and absorption of information uh, from literature, from history, from psychology, from biology. And I wanted to ask you how you read and how you learn. Um, you must be a voracious reader. There's no other possibility that I can imagine. Um, is your, are you just sort of intuitively drawn to a book or something, or do you develop passions for certain areas and then read everything you can? I mean, how do you, how do you absorb what you absorb in order to create what you create? Well, <clears throat> leaving school early then allows you to teach yourself. And it's actually the first, the former, which is I let the literature guide me to where it takes me, as opposed to having a kind of a three-by-five card system, mm -hmm. you know, of organized, outline ideas, do the research, you know, back up your ideas, you know, and, and publish. Um, I let the, the research take me where it will, which, I, which is the fun part, mm -hmm. actually. It, fun is just too frivolous a word. I mean, it's, it's, it's where you make discovery. And um, one of the, for example, one of the things that was left on the cutting room floor for the book was a friend of mine, Kent Bicknell, who's at the a school in New Hampshire. And he collects books that were owned by the transcendentalists, not by them, but the ones that they read. Boy, are those interesting. And he sent me the, he showed it to me, he brought it to me, but then he left me the Xerox of a book called On Buddhism by M. Spence Hardy that was over Thoreau's head in his cabin at Walden Pond with his margin notes, you know. And yeah, it's like, I don't remember them teaching this in high school, you know. <laughs> and um, it's so fascinating to see his mind react or respond to somewhat sophomoric work on Buddhism, but nevertheless, uh, at the time, 
uh, creditable because it was the first. And what we don't know so much is that, you know, North Boston was more um, boulderish than boulder in terms of Buddhism. I mean, there were shops everywhere and Buddhas and, you know, and mala beads and texts and, I mean, you know, right up until the turn of the century. And then I don't know what happened. I haven't figured that out. But, but I mean, it was a really strong influence of not just Buddhism, of course, but uh, Bhagavad Gita had a huge influence on Emerson and the transcendentalists as well. But those are the kind of things where if you have a preset sort of thing about, well, this is what I'm going to write about, then you don't, you know, you, you lose your peripheral vision. I think it's the, I mean, I, I see James and Penny here, but it's the same thing you really learn outside, you know, which is that you don't really know what's going on out there. I mean, you kid yourself. You know, we have no idea. And, uh, and you, you will never learn if you don't have your peripheral vision in a sense, literally and, and, and in a deeper way, which is to be open to what you're seeing rather than to project onto what you're seeing, what's happening. And, and if you do that, then you will experience things that are quite extraordinary. And if you don't do that, then you're camping. You know. What are you working on now? Well, I'm working on a sort of an article called, or book maybe, it's got such a cheesy title, I'm kind of, I don't want to tell you, but, but yeah, I'm going to change it, but, but it's called Coming to Beginning, and um, because everybody's talking about what's ending, which is true, <laughs> but if something's, if all these things are ending, then what's beginning, in other words, and I, I want to, I feel like that context is, is one in which we can understand the ending better. But if we just talk about ending, uh, it's, it's hard, you know, it's, it's threatening and, and it provokes fear. So I wanted to write about what coming to be, what is, what is actually beginning now? And uh, we're such a young, well, I'm not sure we're a civilization, but we're very young as a culture. <laughs> and we're working on being a civilization. And it's going to take, you know, another thousand or so years here. And, um, uh, and, you know, as, except, I think unless you're Jewish or Gypsy or some Irish maybe, you know, we as white people don't really understand what suffering and struggle is, you know, to overcome. We just don't. I mean, you know. And, um, and I don't think we understand what's coming to, at us very well. And I, I wanted to write something that gave it a kind of a depth and a richness and texture of possibility. I can't predict what's going to happen, but uh, so that's it. And then in business, I'm starting another company and, um, with Janine Benyus, who wrote Biomimicry, and Gunter Pauli, who did the Zero Mission Research Institute called Biomimicry Ventures. And, and we basically are snagging these um, technologies that have been created by biologists and academics and scientists all over the world that really use biology and life as, a, as a, the inspiration to services for products, for uh, manufacturing, for energy, for, um, and they're, they're just extraordinary. And um, like bacterial chelation, where you can take the e-waste of the world and crush it to 40 micron, which is what you do when you mine anyway. You, you crush the, the rock 
and then you separate it using chemicals or mercury or whatever means, heat. Um, but here you can take the cell phones or whatever and crush it to 40 micron, and then you run it sort of in this undulating thin film like this. And in each area, um, there's a water coming through this way, and the, the, the molecules there select out for the zinc, for the nickel, for the copper, for the silver, mm. for the gold, for the palladium, and then just draw it off at room temperature. Mm. Whereas right now, you've got to go one to 2,000 C to really to evaporate. You know, you've got this mixture of metals, this plastic and crap you know, that you've crushed, but separating it is very, very expensive. Um, and we're, we're just... The, 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 the technologies that are there are just so sweet um, and, and so um, um, inspiring, you know, in, in their own way. Um, and I could go on and on about all the different ones that we're doing. There's, um, um, well, I'm going to we'll stop right there. But, I mean, that's what we're doing. And go ahead. So, um, tell, go us, ahead. tell us the one that you were going to tell us. Oh, there was... One really great story where there's um, a welder in Sweden and um, he got um, drunk uh, one night and he spilled cider on his overalls, hard cider. (laughs) And uh, he didn't go home. He slept wherever he slept and went to work the next day and noticed that the place where he spilled the hard cider didn't burn from the welding that he was doing. It didn't char. So he went home the next night. He did go home. And then he, he, he put the cider on one half of his overalls and went back, did it, you know. And sure enough, the hard cider was um, a flame retardant. And then he went to a professor, went to another person. So basically, there's this flame retardant that's made of food grade chemicals, you know, lemon and oranges. and that really imitates something that the cells do in the Krebs cycle that can replace all the brominated compounds that we're killing our children with in our car seats and our pajamas and, you know, just, it's diabolical what Albemarle, these companies are voice, and they're, they want to put it on our TVs now, they want to put it everywhere, you know, and they keep working away at these state legislators, you know, to kind of, oh, should, this should be fire retarded, this should be fire retarded. Well, the whole thing is retarded. And, <laughs> you know, because these are carcinogens that we're exposing, you know, our children to. So that's a, that's a technology we, we think is very sweet. And there's, you know, I could go on. Some of them are very simple, but they're really the way nature does things. And nature does things, again, not to anthropomorphize, but uh, in such a a much more clever way than than we've done. And uh, it doesn't concentrate pollutants. It doesn't, it implodes. It doesn't explode. Um, The whole way nature works is completely different than than industry. So right now, the, the, the venture capital world is all focused on energy, pretty much which is good. I'm glad they are. It's, you get that wrong or don't get that right, then it's game over. But, but there's a whole ancillary set of areas that need to be um, addressed, you know, that are... Right, of which chemicals are a major one. Yeah. 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 In fact, I was driving out here along the road and I saw all the solar panels, you know, and, which is so great, but no but about that. But, but when you look at them, why are they so expensive? They're expensive for two reasons besides the silicon whether the thin film of silicon, which is when you look at those panels, 
they have to not let in oxygen for 25 years. Okay? I mean, they, they can't let air in. In other words, they, they're so subject to oxidative stress. Well, that's not out there. <laughs> Nature solved oxidative stress a long time ago. The second thing is that in order to make, whether it's thin film or, or polycrystalline, uh, a solar panel, you have to center it at 450 to 800 degrees centigrade. Uh, and that's expensive, too. I mean, so the two big expenses for solar, now that we have thin film, is really oxidative stress and, and then sintering, which you have to do with thin film as well. So we have, a, nature self-assembles, you know, it doesn't, <laughs> and, it, it, and, and again, going back to what I was saying, bacterial chelation, I mean, we eat food and our body knows how to disassemble it and put it where it wants. Well, that's all we're gonna do with you know, the waste stream. You know. Same with solar panels, which is that we can you know, basically create the, the molecular basis using green chemistry so that the thin films self-assemble, but they can resist oxidation. So that would drastically reduce the cost. You know? So that's one of the technologies we're working on. You know? And again, it's out there. You know, it's there. It's not like we're inventing something. We're actually being mimics. We're actually copying and then really doing the, the, the fine work to, to get it applied in a use that is you know, helpful to us as people, but not you know, to reinvent, really. We're actually acknowledging what's been invented. So. And it, it's just so much fun to do that. I mean, you know, and will you make money? Well, who knows, but, but we're, we're going to have a lot of fun. Wonderful. Yeah. Paul Hawken, thank you for being thank with you. us. Thank you. We're going to take a few questions. Uh, please say your name. Keep the questions brief. Yes, sir. Two nights ago, Paul, on Lake TV, I heard you say in a Bioneer's keynote that we can't do it by making enemies. Right. What a fine line. What an expanded perception we'll need. Uh, your not knowing mind allows you to enter major corporations and gain their trust, where David Corbin as an against corporation focus that's not gaining business adherence to join in this. We seem to all have to join together and own our complicity yeah. instead of making another uh, <coughs> to carry our blame. Uh, I was wondering if you, you've used the word diabolical, certainly actions are marketers and myself and my consumption. Uh, if you would speak on what it will look like when we actually are in a no enemy state. Well, I'll tell you when I get to that state myself. I mean, probably the person next week will be a better um, person to <laughs> answer that question. Hirata uh, Shodoroshi, I. I you remember that wonderful you know, where the, the idiom first arose, but when Buckminster Fuller said, you know, we've created, this spaceship is so cleverly designed, we don't know we're on one, right? 
And, um, <clears throat> and David Brower, you know, used to talk about the lifeboat, you know, which is the spaceship, the same idea. And, and everybody's on the same ship or the same boat, so you can't say, well, if you, if you people leave somehow, the, you know, I mean, leave where, you know? And go where? And that, that holds true for, for, for Walmart, you know, holds true for General Motors, it holds true for everything that is easy to perhaps demonize, you know, to Exxon. Um, and all of this is really just a study in, in self-integration, you know, it's like where, I mean, where are you seeing me, you know, where are you seeing me right now? I mean, you're not seeing me in this chair, you're seeing me in your mind, you know, exactly right. And everything you see, everything you hear, everything you taste, touch, everything is really you. And when you lie down on the grass at night and look up at the stars, you know, they're in you. And that, that, that awareness, you know, is, is, is there. Every child has it, and then we work hard at making them lose it. And, um, and, and it's so hard to get it back. It's hard to, to, re, to, to restore. But what's so, what's so lovely about this time that we're in is that it's not just everything that has to change, actually everyone will change. And um, what, a, you know, what an interesting time to be alive, you know, which is then, um, and that, that, that transformation is, I mean, it's easy to, I think, maybe when say, well, I, you know, talk to the president or this or that to, in a sense, say, well, there's some big lever out there. There is no big lever. What the community is doing here in West Marin is, if there's a lever, this is the lever, because it there's only small things to be done, you know, and. Um, so how do you unmask? Sorry, I'm going to have to ask you to stop right. so we could get well, some other folks in. Sir, well, we can talk later. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Go ahead. Yeah, as part of the um, uh, network of change agents, uh, we're um, Megley's part of it too. We're searching for a way to accelerate um, connecting changes together and also making it more effective. And we've uh, explored ideas of they pledge to each other, change agent organizations, budgeting resources, and so we kind of back each other up. And even, even ways of, so we contribute our resources individually to political leaders if they do the thing that we want them to do, and to institutions, churches, etc. Um, I wondered, besides uh, Wiser Earth, if you had some ideas on um, organizations, websites that you think are um, going to accelerate this whole process? I don't know if you heard the question in the back, but it's really about how do you accelerate change and how do you link agents of change, change agents better. Um, to, uh, contradictorily or ironically, I'm not a big fan of social networking on the, in the digital age, okay? I, I don't think, I think it's vastly overrated. Um, and we have a, a site, and I think it has its use and function, but I, I think this sort of networking is a thousand times more effective. Um, it doesn't mean we don't abandon the internet or tools or emails, I don't mean that, I just mean that it's really humans work best with humans than, 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 than keyboards. Um, and I, 
I see that I see this time as um, perhaps maybe a good analogy would be with you know Václav Havel when he and his compatriots, many of whom were artists, but um, prior to the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet Empire, very much rehearsed democracy, parliamentary form of representative uh, democracy. And they had a shadow ministers and a shadow cabinet, and they would debate, and they had part, you know. And then every so often they'd be found out by the secret police, and they'd be arrested and thrown in jail. And, and then when they get out again, they would just do it again, you know. And when change came to the to Czechoslovakia, there was this preparation that was there. And in the Soviet Union, where they had criminalized business, they were so surprised that when the the, it, when the Russia was a standalone country that it, the criminals had all the capital and all the business skills. <laughs> and um, shouldn't have been surprised because that's who, was doing, that's who was doing business. And so I feel like a lot of what we're doing is preparation. And it seems frustrating. When I was talking earlier about the Red Queen dilemma, somebody I said this to said, God, that's so depressing, you know? I mean, I said, well, wait a minute. Isn't it what we've always said was going to happen, what we needed? First of all, consumerism was ruining the place. That's out. That's gone. That we use too much. That's gone. That we use too much energy. Well, that's going to go. I mean, that's not going to be with us. That we need to localize our economies. That's got to happen because you can't ship stuff around the world. So really, the, 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 the punchline of the Red Queen dilemma is that the... The wind, which has been in our face and for so long, we're so used to it that we kind of lean permanently you know, towards it, especially out here, um, <laughs> is going to shift to our back, I think, so quickly and shockingly, even to ourselves, that the preparation and, the, the, and much of what you're doing, which may seem, God, this is hard, and this, I'm not having as much effect as I think I should be having now, or we should be having, or could be having, it doesn't mean you don't keep searching for those means, but I think that the context within which change is being promulgated is going to change very, very rapidly in a relatively short time. And so the test of you and other organizations would be how well you've thought out what you do in your systems and, and you know in your communities. And so I'm I'm very, very uh, you know, um, uh, impressed and and uh, supportive of the transition town movement in the UK, the post-carbon movement here. I mean, just this, what's happening on a grassroots level to really plan for a energy-constrained world. And it's such, it's the most important work that's going on now because it encompasses everything. I'd like a question from a woman. You got one? Question from a woman? Must be. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I think it's I think it's sort of a vain hope to imagine that 
the things that we're perceiving and understanding will aggregate up into that level of discourse because the discourse that you're hearing is really about 20% of the American population and trying to find what are the, the really the trim tabs for the independent voters. The 40-40 is split already. They're split. They're not going to change their mind. So those 20% is what the conversation is about, it's what the ads are about, it's what the speeches are about, and it's dysfunctional to a, to a degree of, you know, of frustration. So I, 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 I just don't think that's going to occur. It may occur in, say, an Obama administration appointment. Now, that, I th who they appoint to various and sundry uh, 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 departments, and, and, and that's where I think you'll see that sort of nuance and the granulation, that understanding. I don't think it's not there. I just think it's not, it, it can't be expressed on that level because the, the, the value of the time on air is so, uh, is, is, is bizarre, and therefore they talk about basically issues that could, that could swing independence. It's, so we don't have, we don't have a Lincoln-Douglas debate. We don't have a true dialogue in this country politically on that level. Yes, right there. Um, just a, a question about like kind of the divide of working with activists and working with community. Um, we never focus on money and it really hurts us a lot. And you can see this alternative energy in the big companies are yeah. going to be, they're going to be instantly making tons of money on things that we've been working on for years and years and years. So any kind of advice... How does that make you feel? Uh, it, it hurts. Because what, what I want to do with money yeah. and what they want to do with money are two very different things. Yeah. And is there a way we can make that shift to where we can still work the way we want to work and bring more money into our projects? Because um, we are doing the same thing, but we just we don't go in that structure, yeah. the money structure. And um, well, I. Yeah. You know, especially when I talk to more institutional audiences, they think, well, business, particularly think NGOs, is like over there. And I, you know, I really believe that the purpose of, of, the, of civil society is to permeate and pervade all the institutions that do exist and to change how they work and how they think and how they operate. It, 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 it in itself is not a permanent fixture. It is a, it's a fixture of change. It's, a, it's an agent of change, you know, to use your word, and, and of transformation. And so I think it's, it's hard to expect that somehow you're going to have a 401k and an income stream that's guaranteed. It's just not going to happen. Uh, change comes from the margins. It doesn't come from the center. And it's, it's, it's difficult to be marginalized and to feel that marginalization and that's why the courage that is there is so extraordinary. And, and, but I really strongly urge you to cycle through a little bit, you know, and, and so you don't burn out, because that is as harmful as what you know, is going on in other places. We can't burn ourselves out. We can't, you know, it's, we have to take care of ourselves. And sometimes you have to step aside for a while and you've given so much, you have to stop and give to yourself and then go back in. And, you know, you can't keep swimming, you gotta get on land sometimes. And so, but I, I think it's unrealistic to expect, except for a few charismatic NGOs and, you know, for a lot of money to come. You see a lot of money going to Green for All right now. 
a lot of, you know, and you see these little spikes in the organization, but it's, it's basically we're going to be poor in, in this movement. <laughs> the good news is the rest of the world is going to join us. <laughs> I think that's a perfect note on which to close. No. <laughs> okay. Paul Hawken, thank you so thank much for you. being with us here. Thank you. Thank you.